Now we'll bow together in prayer and just seek the Lord's help. Our God and our Father, we do rejoice that the book of God is open before us. What a joy it is that this door is open, open for the preaching of thy truth, for the proclaiming of the gospel of thy grace, for the preaching of Christ and him crucified. Our God and our Father, we come, we seek again to be conscious that this indeed is the Word of God. Holy men speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. How much we need the ministry of Him who is the divine author of this volume. Spirit of God, our teacher be, showing the things of Christ to me. Grant help to thy servant now. Grant that fresh cleansing in the precious blood of Jesus. For what the blood has cleansed, the Spirit of God can fill and use. And O oh, grant that anointing to thy servant now. And O oh, God, grant that thy word will come home with power and blessing, encouraging the hearts of every child of God. And oh, for that awakening of any among us who are yet unsaved and unconverted, that they would come to know Christ, whom to know is life eternal, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many phrases and words that we meet in Scripture that are immediately suggestive of, and indeed can form the basis of, a topical study in the Word of God. Such a word is in our reading. It's the word precious. And of course, when we think of the Old Testament Scriptures, we can think of those verses that speak, for example, the Word of the Lord was precious in those days. Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of the saints. But of course, this word precious was evidently a very favorite word of Peter. You'll notice it twice in our reading. In the first one, he speaks of those who have obtained like precious faith. Then again, there in the first four, the opening words, he speaks of those exceeding great and precious promises. And what an expressive phrase that is. I'm sure those words are known, memorized for every Christian in this meeting. That's to be our theme today. The exceeding great and precious promises of God. It's important, as always, and instructive to give attention to the context in which Peter mentions those promises. Quite simply, you'll notice in verses 3 and 4, he makes mention there of what has been done for us and in us who have obtained like precious faith. And then when you come to the first 5 through to 7, 
Those things that are mentioned there are things that are to be done by us. So first of all, we have what God has done for us and in us, leading on to the exhortation to give all diligence to add those things that are mentioned, verses 5 through to 7. Now that reminds us of a fatal biblical truth and what lies at the very heart of the gospel. Salvation, firstly and foremostly, is a divine work. It is something God has done in Christ for us. It is something God has done in us. Notice in verse 3, by His divine power. So that through the knowledge of Him, that is Christ, we have been called to glory and virtue, to life, that is spiritual life, to life and godliness. See the order, it's so fatal. There must be that life of God in the soul before there can be that likeness of God and character and conduct. The exhibiting of those various graces mentioned in verses 5 through to 7. And it's in that context that Peter introduces the theme. And in doing so, he gives to every Christian, every Christian who is endeavoring to live the Christian life, every Christian that's wrestling on toward heaven against storm and wind and tide, it gives to every Christian the greatest possible encouragement. Indeed, this thought alone should be something that you should carry away from the service this morning. You see there in verse 3, we read the words, He has given unto us all things, underline it, that pertain unto life and godliness. Verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Now, do you see the point that Peter's making? The all things given unto us that pertain unto life and godliness are set before us. They are held out to us in those exceeding great and precious promises. And what a theme this is. And I trust you'll be back tonight. For I certainly will seek to illustrate in a vivid manner what a theme this is. But first of all, I just draw your attention to the source and the seal of these promises. They are the promises of God. See, it's Spurgeon called them the sacred utterances of God Himself, the promises of God. Now, how often that little phrase is found on our lips. And yet, what a singular concept it is that the great God of heaven, 
the infinite and eternal one, the God of sovereign majesty and glory, should make promises to us sinners. It should be an overwhelming thought. When the Lord made made known to David those promises concerning that covenant made, David was overwhelmed. Who am I, Lord? Was the exclamation. Oh, what condescension. These are the promises of God, the God who is love. And those exceeding great and precious promises have well been described as the overflowings of the heart of God. But they're not only the promises of God, they are the promises of grace. Follows, of course, immediately. Just underline the word, given unto us. Now, in the Scriptures, God is revealed as the great giver. There's an old proverb. No greater promisers than those who have nothing to give. It's an old proverb. But you see, God, the divine promiser, has everything to give. Indeed, He has already given to us the greatest gift, His only begotten Son, the darling of His bosom, whom He spared not, but delivered Him up for our offenses. What is the great argument of Romans 8? Shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Notice those words, freely give. These are the promises of grace. Not only the promises of God and the promises of grace, these are the promises of good. And this in Scripture is inherent in the thought of making a promise. You see, always in the Bible, when you come to that verb to promise, it is always to promise good. Perhaps you're not aware of this fact. So it was, its usage in our language, to comparatively recent. You see, when someone says, I promise to get even with you, and they're not promising a good thing, they're promising an ill thing. But let me say to you, that is a modern misuse of the verb to promise. You see, behind all of God's promises, there is the love beat of the Father's heart, whose desire and design is always, in the words of our Savior, to give good gifts unto His children. These are the promises of God. These are the promises of grace. These are the promises of good. The source and the seal of the promises. I want you to turn for a moment or two to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and the verse 20. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 
and the first 20. We're reading these words of Paul, 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God in him are yea and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. These are promises that are communicated to him, that is to Christ. We read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, give utterance to these words concerning our Lord Jesus, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost. You see, these promises, these exceeding great uh, and great promises have been communicated to Him as the living, exalted, glorified head of His people. And these are promises you'll notice in this great text in verse 20 that are confirmed in Him. You see, all of these promises are covenant promises. They're sealed by the blood of the everlasting covenant. They're sealed by the blood of the one who is its surety. And you see, that's why you have a title that perhaps you have not really taken notice of, we're familiar with many of those designations and descriptions of God's people, but you are the children of promise. And these are promises conveyed by Him, that is, by the Lord Jesus. For all the promises of God in Him are yea, that's affirmation, and in Him, amen, that's confirmation. source and the seal of the promises. And by the way, before we move away from that text, at the end of the first 20, we see what is the supreme purpose of all these promises, unto the glory of God by us. Unto the glory of God by us. Someone as well said an expositor, Christ is the fulfiller and fulfillment of all the promises of God because He is the sum and substance of them. The source and the seal of these exceeding great and precious promises. I want, secondly, to draw your attention to the strength and the security of these promises. The strength and the security of these promises. And it lies simply in this. They are the promises of deity. A promise is of little account or value if we've no confidence in the one who makes the promise. You know how it is said, and perhaps I've heard it many times. It is said, that man would promise you the earth. That's the end of it. 
And alas, we do live in a day, of course, when we have to say a man's word is no longer his bond. Again, an old proverb, promises so often are like pie crusts, lightly made and easily broken. How different are the promises of God? And indeed, and surely this is significant, this is a contrast that is so often drawn in Holy Scripture by the Spirit of God Himself. These are the promises of the God of truth. He is the God that cannot lie. Titus 1 and 2. Hebrews 6, 18 affirms it is impossible for God to lie. The promises of the God of truth and the strength and the security of these promises is found in all that God is in Himself as God. Let me say that again. The strength and security of these promises is found in all that God is in Himself as God. I mentioned the contrast. If you turn up Numbers 23 and the verse 19, that's a very vital text in this particular study. Numbers 23 and the verse 19. It's really a text to be underlined. I have it underlined and read in my Bible. But in any thinking about these exceeding great and precious promises, this text cannot be ignored. Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the Son of Man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? You can see in the opening words, the contrast is being drawn that I mentioned moments ago. My men do make promises, and they have every intention of keeping them. That's not in question. And yet, through the force of unforeseen circumstances, the fulfilling of those promises is now beyond the promiser's ability and power. I'm sure it's all happened to us at one time or another. The unforeseen has come to pass. And we had a commitment, but it's now impossible to keep that commitment. Perhaps instead you're rushing someone to hospital. Indeed, it could be you. Unforeseen circumstances. Well, bless God, there are no conceivable circumstances which can prevent God from honoring His word of promise. Omniscience is His. He knows the end from the beginning. Omnipotence is His. 
Do you remember the words of the Savior in Mark 10? With God all things are possible. Now I want you to look at this with me, please. Romans chapter 4. And then I'll be bringing you over to Hebrews 11. But I think it's important that you just look at the Scriptures. Romans chapter 4. And I'm drawing your attention to the wonderful example of Abraham. And of course, immediately that's important. Abraham occupies a unique place in divine revelation in the unfolding of God's redemptive purpose. And he's the father of all them that believe. It's a title he has. So in this matter, then it's so appropriate that we just look at him, the father of all them that believe. Romans chapter 4, verse 19. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not. Oh, these are tremendous words. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith. Notice it, giving glory to God. See how that ties back into 2 Corinthians 1.20. Being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And then turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And we see again the exhibiting of this marvelous faith of Abraham with relation to promise. Look at verse 17, Hebrews 11, by faith. Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And just picture the knife in the hand of Abraham. Fully prepared to make that sacrificial act of obedience a burnt offering to be consumed. And yet, you'll notice what it goes on to say in verse 19, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. You can see it again. The faith of this dear man of God holding on to God's promise. Even when everything seemed to render it impossible. But believe in God. Believe in God. But again, to explore the contrast further, man can be forgetful. Now, you'll forgive me, but I've quoted a few old proverbs to bring out the contrast. Here's another proverb. Men apt to promise are apt to forget. Another old proverb. But the Lord assures His people, that wonderful word in Isaiah 44 and 21, Thou shalt not be forgotten of me. And when you read the Scriptures, how often you read of God remembering His holy covenant, His holy promise, you'll find it in Luke 1, Psalm 105. 
The Puritan William Gurnall said, God's promise is never out of his thoughts. Men and women, there's only one thing about which God gives expression of his forgetfulness. It's Hebrews 10, 17. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Bless God. Of course, that must be understood judicially. Our sins will never be recalled by Him, the judge of all the earth against us. Why? Because of the infinite satisfaction rendered on our behalf by the Savior's obedience and sacrificial death. He's cast our sins behind His back into the sea of His forgetfulness. How wonderful that is. I trust that you know the blessed joy of that. Again, man can be fickle. He can change his mind. You remember those words, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the Son of Man that he should repent. Change his mind. And men change their minds. Men can be fickle. In contrast to that, Jehovah declares, I am the Lord, I change not. Our God, in the words of James, is one with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The psalmist declares in Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Again, man just can be faithless. He really, at best, was half-hearted when he made the promise. At worst, he really had no intention of getting around to fulfilling it. But in contrast, don't we as Christians love to sing the hymn we sang this morning? Great is Thy faithfulness, based on those words in Lamentations chapter 3. The Puritan Thomas Brooks quaintly said, now that's why I would always encourage you to cultivate a taste for the Puritans. Now there are Puritans that you can read that are heavy. If you said, I've never read anything by the Puritans, I wouldn't recommend you begin with John Owen. That can be weighty and heavy. Thomas Watson, Thomas Brooks. And the Puritans had this quaint way of putting things. And this is a, really a typical example. Thomas Brooks said, men many times eat their words, but God will never eat his. That's a typical Puritan quote. Men many times eat their words, but God will never eat his. His. You see, He is. As designated in Deuteronomy 7 and 9, He is God, the faithful God. He is God, the faithful God. And the faithfulness of God, it's like a golden thread woven into the fabric of Holy Scripture. So that again and again we read, God is faithful. God is faithful. But I single out Hebrews 10, 23. He is faithful 
that promised. And what a line of Scripture. He is faithful, the promised. Now, in the light of all of the strength of this, and I trust that you see the strength and security now of these promises of God, surely it's no wonder that one of the Puritans, and I think this is the first time I've ever quoted him, and I know very, very little next to nothing about him, Timothy Crusoe. He was constrained to say, the being of God may as well fail as the promise of God. The being of God may as well fail as the promise of God. Now, as the saints of God, as God's children, to whom are given these exceeding great and precious promises, as I say, we're going to complete the message tonight. Surely we should ever come to these promises with unshaken and unshakable confidence. We should ever come with absolute assurance. God is not a man that He should lie. Neither the Son of Man that He should repent. Hath He said and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken? And shall he not make it good? Unshaken and unshakable confidence. God's servant is going off in the will of God to Uganda with his wife and family. I want to say to you, men and women, that's a massive step. And I'm not conversant with the promises that God has given to him and to his dear wife. But I trust today that this message will just undergird those promises to them, that they rejoice in the God who ever keeps his promise. You know, when General Booth was on his deathbed, he turned to his son Bramwell, and three times he repeated the words, the promises of God are sure. The promises of God are sure. And I love these poetic lines. Have faith in God, my heart. Trust and be unafraid. God will fulfill in every part each promise He has made. Oh, may the Lord help us. May the Lord help this preacher to exercise that same faith, that same trust, that same confidence to be like Abraham, strong in faith, giving glory to God. He has given unto us exceeding great and precious promises.